Good morning. Uh, so good to see you here. It's good to see all those kids, young people going to their class. We're thankful for Taylor and Karen Shea. You're going to see more of them in coming months as they lead worship for us. So that's always a great thing, huh? Thanks for being here. Joel mentioned uh, the soccer game, but he didn't mention the football game. So we'll just leave, leave that where it is. Hey, uh, pray for us. We are going to Haiti. We're going to Haiti this week. And uh, I had four, and I was looking for a fifth person. And uh, I got that fifth person after the last service. So we got five going to Haiti now. Bill Guy has uh, volunteered to go, and Bill has been. So three of us have been before, and two have it. So that'll be good. Dana Miller, he's going with me. Dana, you, you good? You got your will and all that stuff taken care of, your life insurance? <laughs> Just kidding. But I wanted to have five because if we got questioned or we got into trouble, I could tell them that, hey, we're the, um, we're the American men's basketball team, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you can't mess with us, right? Uh, that's five on the basketball team. All right. Well, thanks again for being here. This is the final message of this series. Yay or nah? Yeah, yeah, it's eight messages. It's long enough. The only time we would do one longer than eight weeks is if it was the Ten Commandments. And so, but we could squeeze those in, you know, do them in a couple weeks. But this is the eighth message, the final message of our series, Faith with Doubt. So if you're here, thanks for being here. Maybe some people are listening online. I had some family in Florida watching this morning. So uh, perhaps others are watching, or you may watch this recording later in the week. This is the service that gets uh, put on the website on the recording. So no fooling around here, okay? We got to get this one right. <clears throat> We've been looking at the root causes of doubt in our life, faith with doubt. Now, I want to, since it's the last message, I want to recap just a little bit to make sure some things stick with you because I know there was a lot of information. There's going to be a couple different kinds of people that you deal with who have doubt. Some people you deal with with doubt are going to be non-believers. <clears throat> they're people who don't believe, but they're doubting the message. They're doubting whether God exists, whether Jesus was a real person, whether the Bible is inerrant, that means without mistake, whether it was inspired by any God, and lots of other questions. And so when you come into contact with these people, and you very likely will in your life, you got to remember they're not a believer. So to debate them or to argue with them, don't do that, or to even go back and forth with them is like playing baseball on two different fields. You're in two different arenas. You're not going to convince them. You're not going to win an argument with them. You're probably, by engaging in uh, heavy topics, not going to get them any closer to the Lord. What you need to do is share the gospel with them and pray that God would use the gospel, the Holy Spirit would touch their heart with it. Because they need to get into the same playing field that we're in. Got it? <clears throat> That's a lot of people we deal with. They have doubt. 
Don't argue with them. Don't try to convince them. Don't try to argue them into the kingdom. I don't know anyone who has ever argued into the kingdom. In fact, arguing may push people away from the kingdom. But then there, the people we're talking about in the series are people who have faith, but they also have doubt. Very normal. Don't let that scare you. Don't let that, you know, scare you away. If your child has some doubt about the Bible or about God or the existence of God or Jesus or anything like that, don't let that scare you. There are answers for doubt. Now, there are some things that we are, we're going to have to just take on faith. Blind, not blind faith, but you know what I mean. Some things that don't have answers, but most of our, uh, we take everything on faith. Don't hear what I'm not saying, but some things without answers. There are some things, secret things that belong to the Lord our God. You know this, that, that nobody can give you a good answer for, but that's very few things. Most things there are answers for. And we found that doubt is a many headed monster. It's a many headed monster. It comes in different forms and shapes and sizes. So when we talk about doubt, there are doubts of the mind. There are doubts of the mind. And what we need to do for those kind of doubts is search for the evidence. I love this second song that we sang this morning. There's evidence. I see the evidence all around me. And there are answers. There, there, are, there are reasonable arguments for just about everything. The existence of God. Uh, the, again, that Jesus was a real person, that the Bible is true, the fact that you have morality or a conscience, all these things are evidence, and we can dig a little deeper. Science is unveiling new lines of evidence every year, every three or four years. They have to write new science books to try to explain how evolution happened or how, uh, you know, there's no God, but all this happened just the way it is. So there's lots of evidence. And when you have a doubt of the mind, search for the evidence. And so you have to figure out what is my doubt, a doubt that can be answered. And then there are doubts of the will. Doubts of the will are, I've made a decision that this lifestyle is better than this lifestyle. I doubt that there's really a heaven, so why should I live a particular way? It's just willful. It's volitional. I've, I'm afraid that a lot of the young people that we lose to the world is not just doubts of the mind. They may be brainwashed by some professor or some of their friends or some of their atheist friends around them that, hey, it's all a fairy tale. It's all just a big legend. Your parents lied to you. The church lied to you or whatever. But I'm afraid that a lot of those kids are hanging on to what they know is true, but they've decided, I want to try the fun life for a while. And it's a fun life. I mean, sin is fun, right? Yeah, it's okay to say that. We're all sinners. If sin wasn't fun for you, you didn't do it right. Are you with me? Yeah, sin is fun. But sin will, sin will send you to hell too. So we have discipline, self-discipline. And so a lot of the doubts of the will can be made by, that can be, can be dealt with by making a decisive commitment before you get there. So you know you're going to a party tonight. You reaffirm in yourself, you and a Christian friend, that's why you need friends around you. Hey, we're not drinking tonight. We're, we're going to be those two guys. We're not going to drink. We're not, we're not going to do anything uh, inappropriate. 
We're not going to do anything to anybody of the opposite sex. We're not going to do any. We're going to live our Christian values, and we're going to see if we can have a good time doing that. So you make that decision ahead of time. It's just like when, you know, when we get married or when we come to the Lord, we make a commitment, and we say, that's the commitment I'm going to keep in richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we're parted by death. So that's a doubt of the will. Make a decisive commitment. Then there are doubts of the heart. And this is a little bit more difficult because it's an emotional thing. When you get your emotions involved in something, it's hard to unwrap that. I mean, if you, if you hurt somebody's feelings, and some of you are carrying around hurt feelings from 20 years ago, maybe from when you were a kid. Maybe somebody said something to you. Maybe it was your father. Maybe it was your mother. Maybe somebody said something that hurt your feelings, and that just that makes you think, well, what kind of a church is that, or what kind of a person is this? So you have doubts, and, and life was supposed to go this way, but you, know, you were crushed, and your feelings got involved. That's why a lot of people leave church because their feelings get hurt, and then they stay out of church long enough to where it just becomes a distant memory, and then they eventually they're outside of the faith. They're just not practicing anything they believe. If you have doubts of the will, I mean the heart rather, then uh, the best suggestion for Jeremiah and for us is to, is to come before God and to cry out, to confess. Confess that my feelings were hurt. I'm angry, and uh, I'm, I'm angry at them, and I'm angry at you. And that's, that's the way you deal with that. And then you, you pray that God would restore unto you the joy of his salvation. There are doubts at fear. Last week we looked at Peter walking on the water. There was fear. They were all afraid. Well, we, we said in order to alleviate this doubt that can paralyze your faith, practice the discipline of worship. Get your focus on Jesus. Stop looking at your fear. Stop looking at what the mountain you think is or, or, the, or the giant you think is there and look at God who's bigger than all that. Keep your gaze on Him. So, those are the different kinds of doubt and a little bit of how to deal with them. And there might be more, and we might actually introduce one tonight, today. And as we think about this purpose for this series, we think about those who have faith with doubt, and we get into what's called apologetics or a reason for our faith, because there are reasons, you know, for our faith. Uh, the things we've been discussing over the last couple months, we should think about the people who have left the faith, people who aren't in church anymore, whether that's your children, your grandchildren, or your neighbor, or somebody used to sit with you. If you know these people, reach out to them somehow. And if you've already done that, then we need to pray for them. But they've gone through one of these doubts Something, and it might just be a volitional, willful thing that they've just decided, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to do that because I want to live this life because it's more fun. But we need to pray for them. We've talked about young people who grow up in the church who are active in youth group. Seven out of ten of them, when they graduate high school after six months, are, have walked away from the church, and some of them have abandoned their faith. Now, they may be hanging on to it for later, but you know, they're, they're not living their faith. And the goal of this study, the goal of any study like this, is not just so we can defend the faith to unbelievers. You know, we want to know what to say to the guy who says, well, what about this? Or to believers who have doubt, 
But the goal of this series is also to, to help us keep the faith. To keep the faith. Not to leave the faith or abandon the church or our faith. You know, Christianity, Christianity in America is declining for two reasons. Christianity in America is declining for two reasons. Number one, we're not keeping up with the population growth. Population is growing faster than we are. Other religions are growing faster. Islam is growing faster. Christianity is declining in America. Islamic parents are having still 8, 10, and 12 kids. How many of you grew up in a family of 12 kids? There's one. How about 10 kids? Eight kids. Okay, we've got a few, a few. Most young people today are only having maybe two kids. And, you know, that's good and fine unless you're a grandparent and then you want more, right? Don't stop it too. Give me more. And so uh, we're not keeping up with the population growth. And secondly, the reason, we're not keep, the reason Christianity is declining is because people are walking out the back door. People come in, they get in, start getting involved, or maybe they don't get involved. Get their feelings hurt. Somebody jingles something over here on this place or whatever. They leave, and churches are declining because they're walking out the back door. So let me say this again. I said this last couple weeks, I think. As believers in Christ, we are always swimming upstream. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to push against the culture. Culture is a strong current going one direction. It's going in one direction. It is streaming down. It's like those big Alaskan rivers that you think you could stand up in and you can't. They're just, it's going and it wants to push you down. It wants to ruin your life, to ruin your marriage. It wants to destroy your family. It wants to destroy your faith. That's the current, that's the culture today. It wants to break you financially. It wants to make you dependent on the government for all your needs. You know, the psalmist said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, and that's the government, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that's what this current wants to do, and it wants to do it to you, and it's, it's stronger now than it's ever been. The current is stronger. It's picking up steam. You know, my view of the book of Revelation is uh, what's called a recapitulation theory, and it's like the tide is coming in, and it's coming in stronger and stronger and stronger, and that's what's going to happen before the end and so if you think the current is going to let up and you can wade out there and be in the culture and just enjoy your life, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. But we're not afraid of difficult, are we? We're not afraid of hard. The Bible says, and we sang this morning, with God, all things are what? Possible. So I want to wrap up today in the next 20 minutes or so with a word about it courageous faith, courageous faith, because that's what we're going to have to have in this culture. That's what we're going to have to have in this current. We're going to have to have courage, a courageous faith. And Matthew 28 is where we're going to. That's where we live. This is after the resurrection. The women came to the tomb that morning. They found it empty. As they were leaving, an angel appeared to them 
and said, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Okay, so the women go to the tomb. They run into an angel. The angel said, hey, he's not here. He's alive. Go to Galilee. Go tell the disciples. That's where he's going to meet him. Verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb. Look at this line. We're going to talk about this in a minute. Afraid, yet filled with joy. And ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. Now notice two times in the verses we've just read, the disciples were told, go to Galilee. That's where Jesus is going to be. The angel told the women, tell the disciples, go to Galilee. Jesus told the women, tell the disciples, go to Galilee. That's where we're gonna, you're going to find me. That's where the meeting is. Going to have a big service. Going to get together on a mountain near Galilee. So, I want to read you this next passage because this is kind of important to what I want to get to. Verse 11, while the women were on their way, they're going back to tell the disciples to get to Galilee if they saw Jesus, some of the guards, these are the guards around the tomb, went into the city and reported to the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan... They devised the plan. You know, this is their worst nightmare. He, he really did resurrect. He's gone. Well, we can't let this go. We've got to do something about this. They said, you are to say, uh, they, all, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say, his disciples, tell them his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. You see the plan? Here's the payoff. This is the story. If this report, the report that Jesus' body is gone, gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In other words, we got your back. So the soldiers took the money, of course, and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel uh, a decade or two later. This is 20, 30 years later. And he's saying, for the last 10 or 20 years, the Jewish people and some of the Romans are still saying that we stole the body, that we took the body. And you, ironically, there are some people who say that today. In fact, I mentioned Islam already. That's, this is what they believe. They believe that Jesus swooned on the cross. You heard of the swoon theory? He didn't really die. He swooned, took his body down resuscitated him, and then they whisked him away. Well, I'll just challenge you, if you know someone or you believe this, <clears throat> get yourself crucified like Jesus did. Get yourself beaten. Do what he did. Hang on the cross for all that time and see if you just swoon. Now, he died. That's the story that was circulating. So, could insert some doubt in your mind, couldn't it? So that's the immediate explanation. And then look at verses 16 and 17. Here's the key verse I want to talk about. 
This is immediately after it happened. Then they told the women this. Then the disciples, the 11 disciples, remember Judas is bailed out, went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Got it. He told them he'd be there. That's where he was. That's where they found him. That's where they were going to talk to him. But look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. This is amazing to me. Verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Isn't that amazing? Two times, and probably more than that, it's not recorded, Jesus said, go to Galilee. I'm going to be in Galilee. That's where you're going to see me. You're going to see me there. You saw me die. Some of you have seen me alive. We're going to have a big meeting in Galilee. That's where you're going to get my final instructions. Go there. But some doubted. Just amazing to me how some people today can go through a crisis or go through something in their life, and then they get things all better, and then finally they get to a point in their Christian walk where they, again, they might get their feelings hurt, or they might have something happen in their life, and they just they start doubting again. After all God has done, after all he has said, after everything he's proven to be, some people still doubt. And those are the people I think Jesus says, just wipe your feet off, just dust your feet off and let them go. Don't spin your wills trying to convince an incessant doubter. Pray for them. Pray for them. Now, if you're in your family, you might have more motivation to keep going at them, but you got to pray for a change of heart, don't you? They saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Why did they doubt? Why are some people still doubting? There are two or three good reasons why they might have doubted. One reason is that they thought it was too good to be true. It was too good to be true. Can't be him. We saw him die. Our hopes and dreams were crushed and shattered. Can't be him. Too good to be true. Again, look at verse 8. The Bible says, they were afraid, yet filled with joy. I want you to also look at a verse in Luke 24. Luke 24 is the equivalent of Matthew 28. It's after the resurrection. Women came, found the tomb empty. But Luke 24 includes the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walked with them in the afternoon of Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Walked with them a ways. You remember the conversation? I think we had covered that, some of that in, the, in this series. And finally, he reveals himself to them in a meal. And they immediately run back to Jerusalem. They were on their way to Emmaus. They run back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, hey, we saw him too. You heard the women saw him. You heard uh, Peter and John saw him. We saw him too. And guess who shows up when they're gathered there? Jesus shows up. He scares the daylights out of them. And they're like, whoa, it's a ghost. He says, not a ghost. It's me. Look, look, it's me. And verse 41, after Jesus said, no, it's, I'm not a ghost, it's me, it's really me. Verse 41 says, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Imagine a young girl in her early 20s meets a guy. They fall in love over a period of several months, maybe a year or two he decides to propose, and he does, and she says, yes, this is her dream guy. I mean, it's happily ever after. 
And then a couple days before the wedding, he meets her for dinner and says, I'm just, just not sure. I, I just, I'm not sure this is right. I'm not sure we're right for each other. And he breaks it off. And this young lady's heart is crushed. And so what does she do? She builds a fence around it. She builds a wall, a concrete wall, eight feet thick around her heart. And she sulks around and mopes around and she doesn't want to have anything to do with anyone. She cries every night and finally she comes out of that and starts to resume her life again about a year later and guess what? She meets someone. She meets another young man, a good guy and he's everything she could ever hope for. The only problem is she's got this wall around her heart. But the relationship continues and finally he proposes and all of a sudden all those memories come back and that anxiety of being left there and being dumped and being crushed, having your heart ripped out and wadded up and thrown to the side. And she's like, ah, this, this is too good to be true. This, this can't be happening to me. But he's a good man, so she has to decide if she's going to go forward. And you know, I think this is the same thing. You can finish that story any way you want to, all right? This is the same thing that I think the disciples were going to. It's like you crushed our hopes. We walked with you. We talked with you. We, we were there for you for three years. Well, until the end when we ran out on you. But we thought you'd come through. We thought you'd rescue us. We thought you'd be coming down off that cross. But we saw you die. And we're just not sure. It's too good to be true. And I think there are people like that in the faith today. It's, you know, I've heard the gospel. I know what God says. I know what the Bible says. But for me, it's just too good to be true. I'm too bad. I've got a past. I deal with battles right now. I'm struggling with stuff. It's, it's too good to be true. It can't be that easy. God can't love me. I, I, I couldn't possibly have a future. I think that's one reason why some might have doubted. Because it was too good to be true. But another reason was that maybe they were in the back. Let's think practically. They were in the back. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, the apostle Paul is talking there in that chapter about post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. He says, you know, Peter saw him, John saw him, the women saw him. He said, uh, you know, I saw him. Uh, remember, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And he says, 500 people saw him at one time. Now, we don't have any record in the Bible of 500 people seeing Jesus. We don't have it. Unless that's the group in Matthew 28 on the mountain at Galilee. And that makes sense. Women are coming back. Peter and John are coming back. They're all coming back saying, hey, Jesus, we saw Jesus. And he's going to be in Galilee. He's going to be on that mountain. You know the mountain where he did that thing? He's going to be there. He's, we got to go there. And so word starts getting around, you know, and then the, and the believers in Jerusalem and around are hearing this. 
And perhaps 500 showed up there in Matthew 28 to see Jesus one last time. And maybe they were in the back. And they're like, well, you know, the disciples are pulling security team again. They're right around and they won't let anybody close to them because that's what they did. And, and they're like, well, they say it's him. It looks like him, but I can't really tell if it's him or not. They won't let us get any closer. So they worship, but some doubt it. Now, hold on to something. And get your feelings off your sleeves for a minute. Lean forward. If you sit in the back, don't expect to get the full blessing of the experience. You know, some of us just got back from Nashville from a conference. Um, a lot of our staff went to our church tribe conference. And so we go into this place. There's about 2,000 people there at this one. You know, this is post-COVID, so it's just coming back <clears throat> at the Gaylord Opryland Resort. Beautiful place. So we're there in the convention center. And guess, you know, all these seats, but guess where my group, now some of our staff sat up here, but my group, guess where we sat? Back row. Now, I blame it on John Tracy, one of our elders, because he's got a diabetic pump. He says needs Wi-Fi, and he said the further he went, the, it broke out a signal. So you, you can talk to him about that. But we sat in the back. And, man, when you sit in the back of anything like that, it's different. I mean, you can watch people coming in late, leaving early. You can see who's engaged and what people are doing. And it's a very distracting place to sit in the back. And I noticed great worship. I mean, incredible worship. Almost as good as what Taylor and Karen led us in today. I noticed the people that were engaging in the worship more were up front. They were the ones up front. And we were all in the back, you know, just kind of watching. Well, we were worshiping. And don't get me wrong, you can worship wherever you are. But I thought to myself, you know, this is why they doubted. Wonder, wonder if there's not a spiritual lesson for many of us in the church today, not just physically. I mean, physically, there is a psychological effect of sitting in the back versus sitting up front. You know, you with me? I think if you're in the front row, you should be nodding. Oh, there's nobody in the front row. Okay, we'll go second row. Yeah. Amen. There's a psychological effect. And the reason I like to sit up here is I don't want any distractions. I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't care who's got their hands raised or who's fighting with their spouse or who's elbowing each other. I just want to be able to focus on the worship team and that cross up there in the middle and the song and my Lord. There's a psychological thing to that physically. But there's also a spiritual aspect of that. There are a lot of people who are sitting in the back in the service line. Oh, he wants you to serve, but hey, I'm in the back here, so make sure you go through everybody else before you get to me. And if you're sitting in the back of the serve line, don't expect to get the blessing from serving. And if you're sitting in the back on the small group's experience, you know, I want church on Sunday, but I don't really want to be in a circle with people, then don't expect to get the blessing of fellowship when the crisis hits your life. There's such a blessing to the fellowship, the tie that binds in a small group when tragedy strikes, when crisis hits, and they're like, man, we're here for you. And that's the way they operate. 
That's the way they operate. If you sit in the back on your faith, you can expect to have some doubts. You can expect to be one of those people that says, you know, yeah, I go, but I'm not really that involved. Another reason why I think, now you can sit back now, right? I'm not going to step on anybody's toes on this one. Another reason I think some, some of them doubted was they had unmet expectations. They expected him to ride in on a white horse and wipe out the Romans and set up David and Solomon's kingdom again on the earth. That's what they wanted. That's what they expected. That's what their Messiah was supposed to do. They were just a little out of turn, weren't they? They a little premature. So they had unmet expectations. And if, if we have unmet, if we have expectations of that Jesus is going to do all this for me, emphasis mine, for me, that he's just all about me, then, yeah, I'm going to have some doubt as well. So what does courageous faith look like in the next few minutes? What does it look like? We have doubts. We've seen the evidence. We've studied it. We've made the commitments. We've cried out in confession to God. We've learned to keep our gaze on Jesus. But we still have some doubts, preacher. What's going on? What do we do now? Well, here's the only thing I can tell you. You're going to still have doubts. Even after I've given you all this information to deal with it, here's what you got to do. You got to move forward in faith. Courageous faith. You got to step out into the water. You remember that song, don't you, Rusty? Wade out a little bit deeper. You got to have courageous faith. What does it look like? Here we go. Matthew 28. This is called the Great Commission. This is the end. This is after some of them doubted. They, they worshiped. Some doubted. Jesus is going to preach now. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. What does courageous faith look like? A courageous faith accepts the authority of Jesus. That's what a courageous faith does. A courageous faith asks this question first. God, what do you say? What does God say? What does God say? Some people say, no, what does science say? No, what, what, is, what does this professional say? No, what does our culture say? What does social justice say? What does this theory and that theory say? Let that drive your behavior. No. Nope. What does God say? Because all authority, not some authority, not part of the authority, all authority, Jesus said, has been given to me. When did that happen? Daniel 7, 14. Daniel 7, 14. Daniel said, I saw one like the Son of Man come, and the Father gave him all authority. All authority to rule over all. One day, the Son will give all authority back to the Father. The book of Revelation tells us. But for now, in your age, in my age, the Son has all authority. I don't think I'd be turning to anybody else, not even to your wife, although my wife's voice does sound a whole lot like God's voice and has the same effect. But 
ultimately, it's, Jesus has all authority. Whatever he says goes. Whatever he says is so. You with me? Stop asking what everybody else thinks. Stop trying to get in the popular mindset. And just ask one question, God, what do you say? And where do we know what God said? Well, he says it in his Bible, in the, in the Bible, in his word. And if you can't find it there, if there's a situation in your life, if there's some situation in your life, whether it's wearing a mask, getting a vaccine, or getting in a line, whatever it is, I think the Bible speaks about it or it speaks to it. And if you have trouble finding that, come talk to me. Send me an email. Give me some time. I'll get back with you because I think he has all authority. All authority means all authority. There's not one topic, not one subject, not one area of study, not one area of your life where he doesn't have authority. So if he said he has all authority, he does. We just got to ask God, what do you say? And we got to go find it. A courageous faith accepts the authority of Jesus, but it also obeys the commands of Jesus. It's one thing to say, Lord, okay, now you're in charge. I agree, you have, you're, the, you're the boss here. It's another thing to ask the second question you need to ask. Not just, what, God, what do you say? God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Now I know what you say, what do you want me to do? It should be pretty obvious. You know, the main verb here is not Go. Go and make disciples. The main verb, the present imperative declarative verb here is make disciples. How do you make a disciple? Well, he tells us right here. We could read this verse like this. As you go, make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by teaching them. So you make a disciple by going in other words, you got to get out of your comfort zone. you got to get out of, a, out of your space. you got to go across the road or across the cubicle space or across the office or across the hall or across the ball field or across the tennis court or whatever. you got to go. As you're going, make a disciple. You might have lots of pursuits and plans in your life, and it, that might include lots of things that you enjoy doing. That's fine. Go do all those things. If it's sports, go do it. Be the best you can be. If it's making money, if it's running a business, if it's teaching school or being in the medical field, selling insurance or whatever it is, being a doctor or a nurse, do it. Do it. And do it the best you can. Be the best you can at it. But as you do it, that's called going. As you go, have as your intent, your goal, your aim, your purpose to make a disciple to help others come into this faith that you have. That's the main verb. There's not an optional thing. It's not, a, it's not a, a thing at the bottom of the list. It's not something we can say, okay, I'll do that later. This is it. As you go, make disciples. That's the command of Jesus. That is, listen to me, the most important command we have. I don't know if you thought there was another one more important this is it. This is the last thing he said. You know, usually people give the most important thing right before they go. It's the last thing he said before he left the earth. He said, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. Finally, a courageous faith not only accepts the authority of Jesus and obeys the commands of Jesus, but it walks to the end. 
with Jesus. Jesus said, surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. You're not going to be alone. My church will not be defeated. No virus, no pandemic, no government, no effort, no push. Nothing will defeat my church. And just to show you that, I'm going to hold your hand the whole way. It's like a father grabbing the hand of his child, and they're walking the path together. And that child knows as long as I got a hold of the hand, I'll be good. It's so incredible to be a grandparent and have your little grandbaby raise their hand when they're walking up a hill or down a hill or just walking on the street. It, it feels so good to God for you and me to reach up our hand and say, I, I want to walk with you. Oh, it was so good, Eric, a couple weeks ago when you had to sit in the front row. That was so good. Little Grace, his granddaughter, said, Grandpa, let's get there early so we can get in the front row. Two weeks ago, it was family Sunday. And all the kids were in here. And Darla was at, she got off the hook. She was out of town. I told her later what a blessing it was to me. And there they sat and there they stood. And little Grace, I was sitting over there, normal. And she wanted to get up front. She wanted to get close. She wanted to worship, didn't she? She raised her little hands. I don't know if they're, that's what they're teaching them over there, but they are, it's wonderful. Or if it's just built into the heart of a child. And when you get close to, to the worship, close to Jesus, and it's, uh, take my hand. Oh, beautiful thing. Suffer the little children to come unto me, he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what doubts you have, what you're going to go through, but you're going to go through some. And some of those are going to have answers, and you're going to find the answers, and I encourage you to search for that, make a decision, cry out to God, do all those things we talked about. But in the end, just keep walking with Jesus to the very end. That's courageous faith. When all your friends are going over here, when they're trying to pull you away, when they're saying you're crazy, you're stupid for doing that, you say, no, I know where I'm going. I know whose hand I have, and I can't even walk without you holding my hand, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this message. Will you bless us with the courage to accept your authority, to obey your commands, and to finish the race with you so that we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's my prayer, and may that be our goal and our aim. In Jesus' name.